Welcome to the sixth episode of Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm a scholar of food, gender, feminist, and tech history, and the author of the book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. Previous episodes have emphasized the histories of feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses in the 1970s and 1980s in the United States and Canada a bit more than the current existing ones. In today's episode, I'm going to touch on some of the differences between these spaces over time. We will also be talking with filmmaker Annie Laurie Madonis, who is making a film about the feminist restaurant, Bloodroot Feminist Vegetarian Restaurant of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and historian Dr. Annalise Hines who I was fortunate to be asked to be on a panel with at the Queer History Conference, and digital humanities scholar, Dr. Cameron Blevins. As we've talked about on the podcast, it has been 50 years since Dolores Alexander and Joe Ward founded the first lesbian feminist restaurant in the United States, Mother Courage of New York City in 1972. Contemporary feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses build upon the work of earlier generations. Some owners of more recent feminist eateries even have a direct connection to the past. There's sharing between generations. Contemporary feminist restaurants and cafes continue to grapple with similar challenges that plagued the restaurants founded between 1972 and 1989, while also reflecting the characteristics of feminist movements today. Despite generational differences, the human need for finding community spaces where one feels accepted and supported continues, and the desire to create spaces that reflect their founders' feminist values is as true today as it was in 1972. Feminism has changed, evolved, transformed since the 1970s and 1980s, and the needs of feminist communities have likewise transformed. Queer politics and postmodern theories of the body have shifted understandings of gender. While many of the feminist restaurants of the 1970s and 1980s Focused on women-only or women-centered spaces, there's been a push for feminist spaces to be open to all genders beyond the gendered binary. There's also different access to capital to start businesses. So how have they changed? Are they are there different owners and ownership structures? What are the menus like? What are the community events like? What is similar? Let's dig in to answer these questions. Despite geographical differences, feminist restaurant owners in the 1970s and 1980s were primarily white, lesbian, working, and middle class with some external way to access capital or utilize intense sweat equity. There there were also between the ages of 25 to 40 at the time of starting the business, English speaking usually, and a disproportionately large percentage relative to the general population were Jewish. There were a few notable exceptions to this description. For example, there were the owners of the Black women's restaurant, the Philadelphia Mahogany Black Women's Club, who did not fall into this earlier description. While in the 1970s, most of the founders identified as lesbians, 
contemporary feminist restaurant and cafe owners, collective members, and employees identified as straight, lesbian, queer, and other sexual orientations. Furthermore, while the feminist restaurants and cafes of the past were almost exclusively led and staffed by women, people of all genders, including cisgender, transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people, work at places such as Folsom Street and Augusta Yearwood's multiple businesses. The Firestorm Collective describes itself as a queer feminist group. However, as in the past, women continue to be at the forefront of creating these spaces. In the past, there was a division between feminist restaurants being managed by collectives or by single operators. Now there's less focus on collectives or cooperatives, although feminist cafe bookstores such as Firestorm and Blue Stockings maintain that model. Feminist restaurants and cafes vary in their operating and management structures. However, creating opportunities for employees or collective members to be able to work in a business that reflects their feminist values remains consistent. There are differences in how restaurants and cafes are structured. Like many of the more successful businesses of the past, there are often multiple streams of income. More of the feminist cafes are affiliated with a bookstore or another business that sells non-perishables, or at least goods that can be brought home, such as chocolates. There are similarities, especially with their role within the feminist nexus and their connection to other feminist businesses and organizations. There is also a continued support of the arts. Feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses then and now continue to foster community across artists, tradespeople, and feminist credit unions. They do this by putting feminist art on the walls, inviting guest speakers, hosting readings, and sponsoring political events and special events. They continue to provide paid working opportunities where folks could be out as feminists and as lesbians and or queer. They still combat the harassment and discrimination in professional kitchens, first made evident by the move in the 1970s to move away from waitresses and have customers bust their own tables. Vegetarian and vegan menus are still common, and even when menus aren't wholly vegetarian, there are still menu items that are. The move has been towards more veganism as the years have gone on. Feminist restaurants and cafes founded after 1989 face similar challenges to the feminist restaurants of the past. How can a restaurant make sure to fairly pay workers, fairly compensate the producers of their ingredients, source high quality ingredients, and sell food at accessible prices for customers from a variety of economic backgrounds? This is the challenge that continues. While feminist restaurants and cafes are businesses, they've always focused on building community as part of their missions. To build community and draw potential customers to their physical locations, the feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses of the 1970s and 1980s were deeply interconnected with feminist literary culture and communication networks. Written materials promoted their existence through guidebooks, periodicals, flyers, or business cards. Feminist restaurants also sold and distributed texts, hosted authors, and produced their own newsletters, advertisements, and ephemera. As much as feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses were about food, there are also spaces where attendees could find food for thought. Their writings, advertisements, and publications extended the feminist community beyond their physical locations as they helped share ideas about feminism. The connection of feminist establishments to greater feminist communication networks through books, art, and advertising remains as important after 1989 as it did before. However, the technologies of communication have shifted. Now there's a lot more social media. Instagram and Facebook have been key sites for communication, advertising, and community building. Though never utopic, for many women, feminist restaurants were the first entrance to the world of feminism. 
a movement that offered a vision for a more equitable world. These restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses were places where they could meet other women to build lasting friendships, engage in activism, and find purpose in their lives. For others, these spaces were places to meet lovers and explore their lesbian identities in a new way or in a first way. Their legacy persists because these places were more than restaurants. They were centers of community. The lessons garnered from feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses provide guidance in resolving political friction around intergroup dynamics and and division amongst feminists today. If these findings are not taken into account, present feminist businesses risk reproducing hierarchies of power across race, class, gender, and sexuality. We are now going to speak to filmmaker Annie Laurie Madonis. I first met Annie Laurie through a mutual friend, Zach Chavez. Zach is the same friend who first introduced me to Bloodroot Vegetarian Restaurant back in 2010 when I was an undergrad living in Connecticut. I told Annie Laurie about my then doctoral work on feminist restaurants and my dissertation, Serving Up Revolution. Annie Laurie got really excited about the topic and thought it would make for a good film subject. Just as my 2010 chat with Zach led me to spending over 11 years working on the history of feminist restaurants. My own chat with Annie Laurie has led to her spending the last few years working on a film project with the same name as my dissertation, Serving Up Revolution. This theme of conversations leading to major life changes recurs during our interview. Annie Laurie is a director and producer of short films, documentaries, and animation videos. Her passion for film has led her to travel all over the United States for film festivals, talks, and panels. She loves creating and telling stories that uplift and inspire people, often evoking strong emotions and doesn't limit limit herself to any one genre of film. She has received multiple awards, nomination, and several official selections for her short films and documentaries on a diverse array of topics, including domestic violence, female athletes, and cats. Since working on the Blood documentary, Serving Up Revolution, In December of 2020, Annie Worry has a whole new perspective on what it means to be a woman and a feminist. She is drawn to working with women entrepreneurs and artists, inspired by Bloodroot's 45 years of community impact and tenacity of its founders, Selma and Noel. Annie Worry created the Women's Artist Collective, Women Artists in Action. It provides female artists in the Boston area opportunities to create art, inspire one another, and push the boundaries of what's possible. Annie Laurie truly believes that we all have the power to make an impact in this world, and it starts with community. Hi, Annie Laurie. Thank you so much for being here. Do you want to start by um, saying your name and your pronouns and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, definitely. So my name is Annie Laurie Madonis. I'm a director and producer on short films, documentaries, and animation videos, and I use the pronouns she and her. Awesome. I'm so excited to have this interview with you and to also like give a like table turning um, as you've previously (laughs) interviewed me. So it's fun to kind of switch roles. So we're going to spend a lot of today's interview talking about the film that you're currently working on around Bloodroot from this vegetarian restaurant. So Maybe for listeners, can you just begin by talking a little bit about what your movie is on? Yeah, definitely. For sure. So the the documentary is going to be called Serving Up Revolution. And it's really about the impact that Selma Noel and Bloodroot has had on the community and how the community has had 
an impact on them. And when I say community, I mean not just Bridgeport where Blood Roots located, but really anyone who walks through that door and whether they're a feminist, a vegan, or they're just browsing around the area and they decide to stop by, it really is about um, who they are and who they impact on a daily basis, even if it's outside of the restaurant. Awesome. Uh, so what made you decide to focus on Bloodroot in particular? Mostly because of the fact that you can just walk through the door and you can read about Bloodroot in articles, but you don't really know the magic of it until you walk through that door. And it's out of all the feminist restaurants, again, it's it's the only the last one left from the second wave generation that's still open and it's around for 45 years. So it just made sense to it. The story itself just lended it to that. And, you know, Selma and Noel are so fascinating. The energy, as soon as I started walking through there, I thought this could be an entire mini series. This is amazing. I want to just keep going with it. And um, yeah, it just makes it a lot easier having all the footage there and not the majority of it being archival like it, mm-hmm. it would have been if I was focusing on other feminist restaurants. And so are you doing a series of interviews with Selma, Miriam, and Noel Fury? What's your working relationship been like with them? Oh, a series? Oh, wow. Um, well, it's it's really just been kind of looking at my notes and seeing what parts that are missing or what parts I still want to talk to them about. And then I contact them and say, hey, can we set this up? And, you know, sometimes it is talking about the same topics if I feel like we just didn't get enough information but a lot of it's also just from being around them and watching them, observing them, and then coming up with questions on the fly where I just think, oh, wow, that'd be really cool if we talked about this. And we should get Salman Noel to talk about the paintings on the walls and the pictures and what that means to them. And I've also asked other customers and people who are really inspired by Bloodroot if they have other suggestions on, you know, maybe things that I haven't covered or... Um, you know, that's really, yeah, I would say that's kind of the, <laughs> a general overview. So as you kind of just touched on there as part of your film, you're interviewing a lot of folks that have been impacted by Bloodroot in various ways in their lives. Um, what are some of the key takeaways that you found in those interviews? Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, I would say the the major ones are the atmosphere and the energy. When people walk through that door, oftentimes I hear people say, hey, this reminds me of home or my grandma's house. And I mean, one man was pretty funny. He had never been there before and he was actually working on um, some outside maintenance. And he just said, I feel like I'm in a time warp. I don't know where I am right now. What's What is this place? You know, so it's it has a special energy and magic about it as i mentioned earlier you really don't know until you walk through that door so that's that's one major thing and then also just the food in itself most people talk about how delicious it is and how consistent the food is every time they get it you know they comment in other restaurants maybe it doesn't taste as good this time but it there's so much love and effort behind it at bloodroot that you everything goes into it you feel it the the taste the all of the emotions are are basically going across and you know people are even if you've been there the first time or you've been there 20 times or 20 for 20 years 
Selma and Noel are invested in who you are. And so oftentimes people feel, um, they feel respected. They feel like they're belonging into, into something, a community. They, you know, they just have all these incredible conversations. They might even feel inspired. That also happens. And yeah, the, as I mentioned earlier, the atmosphere too, there's the pictures on the walls, there are the books and they also have the two cats. So it really is a, a, a unique place and people will comment on that a lot. <laughs> um, because you're interviewing so many different folks, people who have worked there, people who have gone there, um, do you think Buttered's impact has been different over time? And do you think it's been different on different generations of folks? Definitely. And I think the first major part of that is the fact that Selma and Noel have also evolved over the years as human beings. And so, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there it was a unique place. I mean, it still is unique now, but especially at that time, it was very rare. And the activism, there's lots of activism at that time. So they did attract a lot of feminists and they had the Wednesday night dinners. So that attracted a specific type of people, like specific groups of people, I would say. But then you know, they also changed from being vegetarian to vegan. And so, um, and then they have a lot of people that come in that are interested in homeopathy. So there's definitely like a type, I would say, of, of energy that they draw in just because of who they are and what they represent. But they've always been inclusive. And, you know, even now that's people are looking for belonging, especially after the pandemic. Where do they have community? Where do they have connection? They show up at Bloodroot and they instantly feel this comfort. Um, but then also because of them being so interested in meeting people, I think even the younger generation is maybe even taken aback being like, oh, wow, like, whoa, this place is historical and they want to know about me. And I feel like I'm out of place because it's like, there's so many books that I haven't read. I mean, some of them are very well read and feminists that I didn't even know about. And I think that energy also draws people in to be like, oh, I want to start researching this and I want to look into this. And I actually met a woman a couple of weeks ago who's 19 years old and I've never met someone so, especially at her age, it's like gung-ho, excited, just activism across the board wanting to make a change in this world. And of course, Noel said, I like her. <laughs> I don't meet anyone from that generation like that, from the Z generation. So, you know, it is, I think it's just the energies that come across. And, and also when, when they are themselves and people come in, it opens that door to show what's possible and to broaden people's perspective. So it definitely attracts people who are open, but that's, I feel like that's been how it has been across the board since they started. Um, but I think their values, you know, things, it's what they're most, what's important to them has changed over the years is what I'm getting at. But they still are themselves and authentic. And yeah, it's, it's really exciting to see that. So hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> so, how has this, how has working on this film impacted you and your life? And have you had other subsequent projects kind of come out of some of working <laughs> on this film? Yeah, it's definitely made a big impact in my life. 
for many reasons, you know, mentally it's, it's changed the definition of what it means to be a woman. Actually, I feel like I grew up as a, a tomboy and I always wanted to, to be a boy in some capacity, but, but then it was like, as I got older and I started to see stronger independent women, I started to realize the power of what it has been to be a woman and Selma and Noel are obviously amazing examples of that. They just who they are inspires me so much. And, you know, being around the the women in the kitchen and just collaborating on dishes and all of that, that's like been amazing to see. And even cooking, I never really did a lot of cooking, but that's been a big part where now I'm interested in doing more cooking. I've gotten some of the cookbooks, I've made some of the meals. And so it really, you know, when I jump into, a, especially a documentary, like I go a hundred percent all in and I'm, you know, as soon as I'm immersed in that space, I, I feel the energies and I want to, to start doing what they do. And so that I'm like, it's a part of my daily life and even books and, and reading about them and articles, that's all part of it. And then also just, um, a lot of the, my crew members I brought, they've also been impacted by by them. They are interested in the cookbooks. They started doing homeopathy. They're just researching things that they wouldn't normally have researched or they're curious about feminism. And, you know, so that has been a big part, just being there and feeling their energies and how that's translated in my life. And then, um, you know, I had mentioned in the bio about Women Artists in Action, which is a collective I started and it provides female artists opportunities to create art, inspire one another and push the boundaries of what's possible. And, you know, it's just it's funny because Selma and Noel always say, hey, we were like Thelma and Louise. We just, you know, jumped off a cliff. We didn't know where we were going. And that's really how this collective started. It It's like Selma and Noel had created space even before Bloodroot started where women would come and bring their artwork and, you know, just be creative together. And then I was thinking, well, hey, like community is so important. What can I make? And I've been missing that, especially just being around creative women. So in Boston, I started that collective and it really just took off. I mean, within three months, I had over 120 members. We, I'm now managing six other women. We have meetings every two weeks for a leadership team. And then we have maker spaces every month and women are getting more confident at the microphone when they're presenting about their art, which is incredible. And so there is that magic and someone will have talked about this before the magic of being in a space with all women. It's sort of, um, it's like a different aspect entirely of what you get out. And I never really realized that until I started collecting the, until I started the collective and seeing how women work together, it, it, yeah. So it's, it's amazing to see how everything connects with my life because of the documentary. It's doing homeopathy, doing the collective, hanging out with, you know, female entrepreneurs and artists. And it's like, I feel that everything is in aligned with my values and who I am. And that translates across the board, but really started this the seed was planted with bloodroot a hundred percent and where can people learn more about your film and project so people can go to the instagram handle serving up rev and they can follow that which will have like basically pictures and videos 
from my journey doing this documentary. And the other option is they can go to my website, AnnieLaurieMadonnas.com, and it has my contact information, which includes my email address. And that is A-L-M-E-D-O-N-I-S at gmail.com. And then they can subscribe to the newsletter. Right now I have over 150 subscribers. So that's really exciting. And then if you follow the newsletter, then you'll be able to see, again, pictures of, of my journey and little descriptions and sometimes quotes underneath it. Awesome. Well, we will make sure to link to that in the transcript and show notes. Thank you so much for being with us here today. We really appreciate it. Awesome. I really appreciate it too. I'm just so inspired by what you're doing and this project. I know you've, you've worked really hard on it across the board with researching and the podcast itself. So I, uh, I give you a lot of props, both of you, for putting in the hard work. While filmmaking is one way to represent these histories and generational differences, we are also going to talk about mapping as another way to better understand these stories. So now we're going to speak today with Dr. Annalise Hines and Dr. Cameron Blevins. Dr. Annalise Hines is an associate professor of history at the University of Oregon, where she teaches courses on women's history, gender and sexuality, ethnicity and immigration, and consumerism. Her first book, An American History of the Chinese Parlor Game Mahjong, was published by Oxford University Press last spring, 2021. Her work has been featured by National Public Radio, The Wall Street Journal, South China Morning Post, and Lilith, among others. She is currently working on a book project about lesbian feminist communities in the late 20th century, as well as a related collaboration with Dr. Cameron Blevins to create a public history mapping project based on the publication, Lesbian Connection. Dr. Cameron Blevins teaches United States history and digital humanities at the University of Colorado, Denver. Prior to that, he was an assistant professor of history at Northeastern University and core faculty member of the new lab for texts, maps, and networks. His book, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. It presents a spatial interpretation of the 19th century American state by mapping sprawling infrastructure of the nation's postal network. Some of his broader interests include geography, communications, gender history, and information visualization. Well, thank you both for being here. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Annalise and Cameron, would you mind introducing yourselves? Sure. Thank you so much for having us. Um, My name is Annalise Hines, and I uh, teach history at the University of Oregon. Um, And the pronouns I go by are she, her. Thank you. And uh, my name is Cameron Blevins. Uh, I teach history at the University of Colorado, Denver. And I use uh, he, him pronouns. So I'm so excited to talk with you both today about your current project that you're collaborating on. You've been looking at the periodical Lesbian Connection. Can you tell us a bit about that periodical and what are some of the key features from that periodical? Yeah, Lesbian Connection is really a fascinating publication. Um, It emerged uh, amidst the explosion of feminist alternative press in the 1970s. And their particular story begins in 1974 
um, when they, the founding editorial collective was organizing the 1974 Midwest Lesbian Conference. And uh, they experienced difficulties in actually really trying to spread outside of regional word of mouth to spread the word about this conference and really bring people from all parts of, at that point in time, North America, thinking particularly of the US and Canada. Um, and in their own words, they wrote, like, uh, it occurred to us that no matter how many artists created lesbian albums, books, or posters, or how many activists organized lesbian groups, centers, or conferences, it would be basically pointless if other lesbians had no way of knowing that these things existed. And so they began creating this publication, um, again, amidst a whole explosion of other publications, but a few things really make them stand out. Today, one of the ways they stand out is the scope of their readership, um, the spread of their readership, which, which extends around the world. And also the fact that they're still going almost 50 years later, which is quite remarkable. Um, and another way, a few other ways that they stand apart is that they function um, and intentionally set up themselves to function as a kind of community bulletin board, similar to the types of bulletin boards that would have been in feminist bookstores of the time, where readers write in and post, right? Uh, about events, um, notifications, things that were happening in their communities. But they also served as a community forum. They said, you know, we didn't represent all lesbians. And in fact, uh, much of the editorial board were composed of white individuals. That's true for a lot of its readership, although we definitely see letters coming in from women of color who were a part of and often took leadership roles in this community. Um, but they understood that they didn't represent everyone. And so they said, we want this to be written by our readers. And so they might pose questions that then uh, their readers would write in letters about and it would these conversations would extend over multiple issues. Um, and a really key piece that we'll talk more about <laughs> today, and that's directly related to the mapping project that Cameron and I are working on together, are that they served as a community directory and really a way to create long distance networks between lesbian identified women, originally again, thinking especially about US and Canada, and that remains their largest base, but then eventually around the world. And their, their tagline is free to all lesbians. <laughs> it's, a, it's a donation only kind of endeavor. And um, their directories included, eventually included directories of land groups, they published catalogs of lesbian owned and lesbian friendly businesses. But the real heart of this was a section called the contact dike directory. Um, and that is when individuals would volunteer and sign up to become, to be contacted and to become known by this network and this growing network and community um, as a resource. That's so wonderful and exciting. and. Can you speak a little bit more about the network of contact dikes? How did they function and were there changes over time? Yeah. Um, so the contact dike directory begins in 1975 um, and they ask for people to speak up, particularly people who were in areas and states where there were no publicly known lesbian identified groups. There was no feminist bookstore that people could go to as a kind of node of information. Um, and that they could be a, a place to stay, for example, uh, in, in, amidst a significant movement of people um, 
joining new lesbian identified communities or simply starting a new life for themselves or going to the women's lands or going to music festivals that were happening around the country, right? All these different reasons people were moving. Contact dikes were safe, safe places, safe houses where people could, um, could stay in those travels. Um, and I know Cameron, you've really immersed yourself in these contact dike directories. And so I'll pass the mic on to you. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a really unique feature uh, of lesbian connection, and so it, and you see it starting almost immediately. I think uh, in issue number four, right? So you know, less than a year after the initial inaugural issue of Lesbian Connection, uh, they're publishing this first directory listing. Um, it starts with fifteen uh, people from a handful of states in the country in 1975. And then immediately balloons. Um, so by 1980, five years later, there's 170 contact dikes in this directory. And then by the end of the 1980s, uh, kind of the end point of the period we're looking at, uh, there's more than 600 uh, women who are listing themselves in these contact dike directories from every single U.S. state and a dozen countries across the world. Um, and it really does become this larger network that's not just existing inside the pages of Lesbian Connection, um, but really allowing people to travel, to meet others. Um, and I was actually just reading one today. Uh, an Australian uh, took a five-week trip to the United States in the 1980s and reported, uh, wrote in a letter to Lesbian Connection saying, uh, I traveled hundreds of miles meeting other lesbians sharing common experiences, hearing each other's stories, learning about our differences, accepting and loving each other. When I wanted to dance or weep or talk, there was always someone there, such connections. And she basically structured her road trip through the United States to stay with and meet uh, lesbians who were participating in this contact dike directory. Um, so it's a really fascinating uh, sub-network within the publication. Um, and one that I think is especially interesting from a mapping perspective, because instead of just seeing locations that are in the urban areas, major metropolitan areas that we might expect, you know, Oakland or the Bay Area, uh, Brooklyn, New York City, you're getting women who are signing up to live in, you know, semi-rural Texas or smaller cities and towns. And so you get this much more dispersed geography that I think is uh, emblematic of lesbian connection uh, as a whole. So let's jump into that about the maps. So you've been using Lesbian Connection to make maps. Can you tell us a little bit about the mapping process and the motivation behind doing so? Yeah, well, the um, this particular mapping project got started when um, I was beginning my next book project, which is a larger study of lesbian feminist community building and alternative economies in the 1970s through 1990s. And one of my main questions was figuring out where were these self-identified lesbian communities and how were people connecting and, and organizing across time and space in this, in this context. And lesbian history is really underrepresented in the historiography. And so a key question is simply, right, like, where are some of these nodes? And um, at the same time, I was starting to dive into this rich, source space of all these different feminist and lesbian feminist periodicals with, as part of the alternative press at the time. And 
I learned about lesbian connection. Um, and I also learned about lesbian connection thanks to the great historian Margot Kennedy, who's been a really wonderful mentor for this project. She was like, you got to check this out. And I saw that this was in its directory function, right? There was a huge amount of mappable data um, that, again, is different from a lot of the um, prose-focused and artistic-focused publications at the time. And Cameron and I are friends from graduate school. I knew he did amazing digital history work. Had His first book was about um, uh, the U.S. Postal Service and did incredible mapping work with that in the 19th century. And so I reached out and was like, would you mind helping me figure out how on earth I'm supposed to <laughs> approach this huge amount of mappable data? And um, he was the perfect person to reach out to. Since then, we have brought in student researchers, and it's really become more and more of a genuine collaboration um, in lots of ways. So uh, I'll, I'll, again, maybe pass the mic back to you, Cameron. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so the nitty gritty is basically uh, we've selected a kind of sampling of different issues from across this roughly 15 year period from 1974 up through 1989. Um, and looking through the issue, we're essentially creating a database of every single time there is a geographical location of some kind. Um, so that can be a letter that someone is writing in, right? And it's signed, you know, Buffalo, New York, something like that. It can be an advertisement that has uh, address for people to uh, mail in a money order to purchase something, for instance, um, or it can be one of these contact type directory listings. Um, so there's a bunch of different spatial information that is contained in each of these different issues. And the idea is that you can anchor those points in uh, onto a map. Uh, and the basic approach is that, you know, we're not, especially good at conceptualizing geography in a specific way. Um, you can read through an issue and say, whoa, there's a lot of people from a lot of different places, but it's something very different to visualize that as data, put it onto a map, and then start to see um, some of these patterns emerging. We're also able to sort for the types of um, information that is being included and who is producing it. So we're not I want to make it clear we are protecting the privacy of these individuals who are um, being generous enough to, to volunteer as contact dykes, right? That was always meant to be a kind of in-community source of information. And in fact, over time, we see that people sometimes are vulnerable to harassment or, um, you know, conversion outreach by evangelicals if that information does enter, um, you know, non-in-group in hands. However, what we're doing is... Um, tracking on a uh, city city level, basically, um, who and how much uh, information is showing up. And then we're able to track, is this, you know, what percentage of these markings are uh, representative of health centers? What, how many are community groups? What's a business, right? There are tons and tons of individuals who are running businesses out of their homes as well as kind of brick and mortar businesses, most especially bookstores, but also different kinds of book uh, businesses over time. Um, and, and then also paying attention to, uh, we're able to sort then and, and screen just for in the contact directory, what does it look like when we consider where individuals are who are volunteering to be known as part of this network? How does that map look different from, for example, a brick and mortar uh, 
type institution and infrastructure building that's happening. Those maps look really different. There are a lot more individuals than, um, you know, uh, community centers you know, or women's community centers, for example. And yet at the same time, we can start to see patterns on both an individual and a kind of infrastructure level. And the maps themselves are so beautiful and so wonderful to look at. Cameron, can you tell us a bit more about the mapping software that you chose or and why you chose to use that one in particular? Uh, so we're using a software called Tableau and specifically Tableau Public. Um, it is a commercial platform uh, that's kind of become something of an industry standard for exploratory data visualization. Um, and we're using the free version. Uh, but that also means that we can uh, host it kind of on a server and then share it with each other. Um, so I can, you know, upload uh, an updated map. Annalise can log on uh, to that URL from her office in Oregon and see the map. And we can, uh, you know, there's interactive features. So you can kind of explore it a little bit more. We're currently keeping that private um, just for the sake of, again, some of the issues that Annalise raised. And it's really a work in progress. We're constantly kind of updating the data. Um, but that's the software we're using. It's mainly for this kind of collaborative, exploratory type purpose. Okay, amazing. And Annalise, you've been mapping these lesbian networks across space. How, can you speak a bit more to how these connections changed over time? Yeah. Um, so, and I'll add that, as Cameron mentioned, this is a work in progress. So we're really eager to continue to build this um, data set and really be able to get more and more information and more fine-grained questions about what changes over time and where and, and what stays the same. But big picture, one really obvious change is a massive growth um, and, and uh, um, deepening of these networks over space. And like I said, this, the United States remains the base of this, but it does become increasingly global. And part of that is simply mapping right, this particular publication and, and its own spread and growth in readership. But what we've seen in other sources as well is that it really was a, uh, it achieved its purpose in many ways of, of connecting huge numbers of lesbian identified women. And um, what you see is uh, a growth that I think in many ways parallels the larger growth of lesbian feminist identified institution building and community building in this same time period, um, particularly again from the mid 70s through the mid 90s. Um, and uh, so that's like a big picture, major change. We're also seeing a really strong continuity across this time, which is again, where some of these um, patterns are emerging. And many of those locations are different from what has already been covered in the historiography and or what we might know and assume already. I think a lot of people who know something about this history know that Western Massachusetts, for example, is a really important area for lesbian feminist um, institution building. And that shows up on the map, but it's really not one dominant place at all. In fact, Gainesville, Florida is hugely important in this map and stays that way across time. So there are these surprising places that emerge very consistently. And we also see a really um, remarkable level of distribution. And this, you know, the, the uh, gay liberation motto of we are everywhere 
in lesbian connection they explicitly reference that and i said yeah we really are everywhere and it's true and it's evident in this map cameron in this podcast we've spoken with several folks who have done mapping jack giesking was mapping queer spaces in new york Gregor Matson was mapping gay and lesbian bars. We've also talked about Amanda Reagan and Eric Gonzalez mapping the gay guides, and my own work mapping feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. Your project is the only one to specifically map lesbian space. What do you think mapping offers as a method? Yeah, um, I think this is part of a larger, a couple of larger shifts taking place. Um, one of which is this kind of general spatial turn in the humanities and social sciences to really thinking about space as an analytical category of analysis. Um, related to that is a more technological shift, right? Over the last 10 years, it's just gotten a lot easier to put things onto a map and start to look for patterns and then to also uh, communicate and show those maps uh, online. I think it's telling that a lot of these projects do have a public facing uh, component to them. Um, and I think what mapping really offers that uh, you're seeing a lot of these projects is a way to excavate and visualize a history that really has been kind of ignored for a long time. Um, and it's a different way of starting to show the history um, of, you know, different marginalized groups who uh, maybe don't have that history as present. Um, and so it's definitely not the only way to do this, right? But I think, again, it is telling that so many different researchers that are studying different aspects um, of queer history writ large are kind of turning to this more spatial and mapping uh, mapping approach. I think we're really excited to, to have this kind of be almost like a, a kind of complementary piece to some of this amazing work that's already been done um, and really starting to piece together a much fuller uh, history and geography um, of this topic. And to speak more about how your work is in conversation with other scholarship Annalise, I know you touched already on a little bit how your work is different from some of the historiography around LGBTQ spaces and community making, but would you like to add anything else? Uh, sure. Um, you know, this project is definitely building on the incredible work that has been done over the last 40 years um, in queer history and LGBTQ history. Um, and within that context, lesbian history really remains underrepresented. I think that's widely understood and known. Um, and uh, part of that is because of the differences between studying where male identified people and female identified people and gender transgressive people and trans people are showing up. And those spaces and opportunities are different and they're different according to gender, class, region, race. Um, and so when we look for people, we need to be taking all of those aspects into consideration. And so um, lesbian feminists talk about history as different from history. And that's not just this kind of um, linguistic turn of making things less male centric. Um, it's actually a conceptual difference too in the sense that one piece of history is about focusing on collectives and um, groups and movements rather than the focus on the individual, um, which is something that we're doing again in this community uh, focused approach. And you see that reflected in the publication itself and its structure. Another is that um, we need to apply different historical methods, sources, questions, 
that pay attention to those differential uh, access to public space, to economic autonomy, which includes things like uh, ability to access credit and self-supporting incomes. Um, and also looking at intentionally uh, female focused spaces, right? For a lot of lesbian identified women, it was a fundamentally political identity. It was a larger question of gender liberation, gender solidarity. Um, and so this is a woman identified woman kind of category. Um, and that includes things like gender separatism, which in the context of the, of the time was organized around questions of basically cisgender men over time the question of trans exclusion becomes more and more central to some of these politics. But that is that again, that is something that happens over time. So all of those questions about that, those intersections of gender, class, race, mean that um, much of what has been most accessible and covered has disproportionately focused on gay male communities, and particularly gay men in urban space. We definitely see some um, wonderful work done on rural uh, communities, um, black, gay, and lesbian identified histories. Again, in an increasingly diverse context, but still so often it's really focused on these kinds of um, urban communities. And so uh, one of the things that this project does is really, again, kind of explode how we're thinking about community itself and really moving away from only a, a localized approach, which has been such an important bedrock for queer historiography and thinking again about like long distance networks and really being in conversation with um, literature that engages with communication networks and ideas of um, movement building and identity building that happens across significant space. Over the past 50 years of publication of Lesbian Connection, I'm wondering if you can see some generational differences between the feminist and lesbian feminist communities within the publication itself, both in the kinds of spaces that they're creating and the kinds of activism they're doing. I'm particularly interested in if you've seen this play out in the maps, and if so, how? Um, well, I, I think I may have mentioned earlier, I'll just emphasize that we're really looking forward to continuing to grow this data set so we can see more um, changes across time and dig uh, with more fine grain um, information. But I think that uh, one of the things that we see change, uh, it, what we really see grow in the time period we're looking at and that we can contrast with today are things like the um, importance of women's lands at this time, where you really have a significant growth of um, places that are part of a long history of American utopianism and overlap with other radical movements at the time of creating a the possibility of a new society um, organized around women's lands. And uh, this is happening in other countries as well, but largest in the United States. Um, and women's lands become these nodes where people travel to, might stay a while, and then connect with neighboring communities, stay with contact dikes on their way through. Um, and similarly, events, particularly musical festival, music festivals. Obviously, the Michigan Festival becomes... Um, 
is the is the largest and becomes really embroiled later in politics of exclusion and trans exclusion in particular. Um, it was never the only music festival, but throughout this time period, again, these events become temporary models for creating alternative and collectively organized societies. Um, and so those those are really different from the kinds of um, institutions that exist today. I am hearing from uh, other young people and young activists today um, a interest in, a connection to, a motivation to um, rebuild some of those same infrastructures. But I think we're also seeing it play out really differently. And I know, Cameron, you have some ideas about that as well. Yeah, the, the generational piece is fascinating to me as someone who uh, both as a historian hat, but also uh, I teach digital studies to students, which is effectively teaching students how to use technology while also learning about the ways in which technology shapes uh, society today. And so I can't help but kind of see some of the parallels of thinking about things like queer TikTok or hashtag activism or all sorts of ways in which um, communities are using social media in a kind of 21st century uh, context to build community, uh, both at a distance, but then also to facilitate some of those in-person connections as well. I and mean, I think even something like the rise of online dating and dating apps, right, has really changed uh, some of those ways. And I think, you know, not to put on my historian hat again, but I think everything does have a longer history. And so thinking about the ways that communication platforms uh, what roles they serve in this process of community building, I think is really fascinating and important to understand some of those antecedents that came before this more modern uh, modern age of social media today. I'm curious about um, with the software that you're using, because I always worry about digital obsolescence and also just like because it's proprietary, um, like, how are you trying to manage that and deal with that, with this project? Yeah, I see this as the first of maybe two stages, really. Um, Tableau Public and Tableau in general is much better for an initial exploratory and research stage. It's very easy to uh, quickly take a data set, visualize it, and start to look for patterns. Um, I see it less useful, frankly, for a more public-facing or presentation side of things. Um, and I think we're going to probably try to figure out down the road, once we do have it in a more finalized form, how we want to display it either to a public or in terms of, you know, figures and stuff for potentially an academic publication. We're not necessarily going to be uh, just relying on Tableau, but it's a, it's a kind of eternal question for these kinds of digital projects is the obsolescence mm -hmm. uh, piece. And it's just kind of comes with the territory, unfortunately. Well, thank you both for being so generous with your time. Where can folks find out more about your work? Um, well, this is a this is something that we're excited to continue to build on. Um, as Cameron mentioned, we're keeping the kind of map in progress uh, private for now, but we do aim for that to be a public facing digital history project. So stay tuned. We both have Twitter handles um, that we will tweet things out of as well as websites. And we are working on an article for submission to an academic journal. Um, my Twitter handle is at my name, Annalise Hines, A-N-N-E-L-I-S-E-H-E-I-N-Z. 
And my Twitter handle is much more uh, annoying, so it is not my name, but it is at historying, history, I-N-G. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. And we'll include links to those handles in the show notes and transcript. Thank you both so much for being here. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. For more information about Annie Laurie Madonis, Dr. Annalise Hines, and Dr. Cameron Blevins, please see the links in our show notes and transcript. This episode built on a talk I gave this past year at the Queer History Conference in San Francisco, which was such an amazing conference. It also builds off of some of the material in the final chapter of my book, Ingredients for Revolution, in a chapter I wrote for the book, Food Instagram, Identity, Influence, and Negotiation, which was edited by past guest Emily Contois and Xenia Kish. You can find links to these publications in the show notes and in the transcript. Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast will continue next week. Please follow the podcast to be notified of new updates. All transcripts are available at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. My book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses is coming out fall 2022 from Concordia University Press. You can receive 20% off pre-orders with the discount code KETCHUM20, K-E-T-C-H-U-M 20. I've included the link in the show notes and transcript. An open access version will be released a bit later. Thank you to my co-producer, Sadie Qatar, for your editing assistance. Thank you to Sarah Nandy for proofreading the transcripts. Thank you to Shark for the Insight Grant, which supports making my scholarship available in more accessible formats. Thank you to Tyler and Juan for the music. And of course, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.